part of, I think, my outlook on this is the fact that I'm a part of a generation that is more diverse than ever before, um, racially, sexually, socioeconomically, education-wise as well. And so part of kind of the way that at least I've been sort of raised by talking to my peers is, you know, we we always think about, you know, who's not at the table, who whose voices aren't we centering? And I think that's sort of um, always keeping aware of, you know, what are the voices that we're missing is um, something that has been ingrained in me from a young age and something that I try to do, whether it's, you know, media work, whether it's through which voices I try to amplify. I think that's so important because it's those voices we need to hear so much more. It's not the pundits who are on TV. It's not the, you know, people who you see every day on your screens. It's the people who are actually on the ground who, you know, are impacted by these stories. Hi, listeners. It's Risa dropping in as we come to our end of August, which is Civic Health Month. This has been a time to showcase the link between voting and health and to celebrate efforts that ensure each and every voter has the opportunity to support their community's health at the ballot box. Now, the reality is that 80% of health outcomes are determined by non-clinical factors, such as access to food, access to affordable housing. The Visible Voices podcast and Vote ER invite you to celebrate for Civic Health Month. Hi, listeners. It's Risa, and I am so delighted to bring you today's conversation with a guest who is perfect for the end of Civic Health Month. Why? Because Victor Shi, my guest, is particularly interested in civics, civics health, and civics education. He is the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. That was in 2020. He's a writer, a speaker, an organizer, an activist, a podcast co-host, an FOR, that's Friends of Risa, and a senior at UCLA. There he is majoring in American literature, yes, we said it like that, literature, and culture. He's a member of the school's Daily Bruin and political union clubs. When we get to the conversation, I am speaking with Victor about the Republican Party, politics, and the media's presentation of politics. Recently on social media, Ben Rhodes sent a tweet out on X. During my 20 years in politics, two destructive trends stand out. The steady radicalization of the Republican Party and the trivialization of politics, particularly the way it is covered by U.S. media and how politicians respond to that dynamic. And then Soledad O'Brien retweeted, stating, this is exactly right. And she's right. And so is Ben Rhodes. I mean, when you look at this, the first point, the radicalization of this Republican Party, it is something that we're seeing, I mean, to this day right now. I mean, you saw it slowly happening with Donald Trump and sort of the movement that he unleashed by running for president in 2016, but all throughout his presidency, this sort of slow chipping away at everything that we care about as a country, the rule of law, the norms, the institutions. And what makes me more depressed than anything else about this Republican Party are the number of Republicans who know better who aren't speaking up about this. I mean, it's Trump. Yes, it's it's that's a big part of this. But it's also people like Kevin McCarthy, people like Mitch McConnell, people who have for at least in my mind, an education, someone like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, who have gone to very prestigious law schools, who have passed the bar, who have practiced law, but somehow still think it's okay to steal elections or still think it's okay for Donald Trump to chip away at the rule of law. And that's, I think, the most dangerous part about this um, party that we live in right now, which is that you just have people who are so 
willing to stay silent about things that require people to speak up on. And I hope they find a spine. I hope they find a voice. And you kind of have people starting to do it now. As we're recording this, um, the other week, there was a debate and you had Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, who were pretty vocal about the current state of the Republican Party. But the majority of people there said that they would still vote for Trump, even if he was convicted. And so it's just this really dangerous position that we find ourselves in. And then, like Ben said, that media component of well as well isn't helping at all. I mean, they're focusing on a lot of the really trivial issues. I mean, if you tune into you know, MSNBC or CNN, it's always about Trump, basically, it seems like. Fox is, of course, covering Biden and Hunter Biden and the laptop and his latest gaffe. And so it's like, you know, traditional media isn't helping either. And I think those two forces are really, like Ben said, really destructive. Yeah. You mentioned the word silent speak voice. The name of the podcast is The Visible Voices. And I'm wondering, when did you realize you had a voice? And when did you start using that voice? So I was sitting um, in an eighth grade social studies classroom, and it was like a couple of weeks before the 2016 Iowa caucus. And my teacher just on a whim lectured the political spectrum and just basically explained, you know, what the candidates all believed in. And at the time, it was Bernie and Hillary running on the Democratic side. And then it was Donald Trump running on the Republican side. And there was something about the way that she explained it that seemed really fascinating. And then at the end, she ended by saying, um, you know, as young people, you can all make a difference in your community as long as you get involved. And at the time, I didn't really have much other things to do other than, you know, play video games or do what eighth graders normally do. And so I went to a um, local congressional campaign office right by me for Brad Schneider. And I just knocked on the door and said, you know, can I help out in any way? And they assigned me to a couple of, uh, I guess, precincts in the area. And I knocked on doors. And it was that moment that I realized, wow, like I could actually talk to people and and hopefully my being, you know, an organizer and, and helping out can persuade someone to vote for this candidate. And that was really surreal to know that I could be a part of something bigger than myself. But it all started with a teacher and they're just truly amazing the impact it can have on you. It's Civics Health Month and I was so delighted that you said yes to joining me to complete the month and to speak about civics. Voting rights are the bedrock of democracy. And so my question for you is, do you think democracy is at risk? Is it on the line? More than ever before, um, it seems like it's at risk. And it's not me saying it. Um, it's really chilling to hear it from authoritarian experts like Ruth Ben-Ghiat or Tim Snyder, who have studied this for their entire lives, who have gone to authoritarian regimes and, and looked at what that looks like when democracy begins to slide. And the consensus is, you know, when you look at this Republican Party and everything that it's trying to do, it's a slow chipping away at rights. You saw it with abortion, with the Supreme Court taking away this long-held precedent that the Supreme Court set guaranteeing a woman's right to choose. They struck that down. All across the country, there are challenges to make it harder for people to vote for people who are young like me, for people who are black, for people who are minorities to vote, to cast their 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 ballots. You have, um, and this is one of the scariest parts, you have banning books. I mean, in no society, in no at least de democratic society, should there be banning books because it might insult certain people, right? I mean, if you have banning Toni Morrison because the way that she writes might insult certain groups of people, then that says more about you than it does about her book. And that's a sort of the kind of white power, I think, that is really infesting our country right now. And that is the sort of authoritarianism that people like Ruth and Tim, I think, warn about. And I think that every American should be really alarmed by. Now, I, I do think that kind of what gives me hope is this sort of rising generation of young people going to the ballot box and making their voices heard but it's going to take all of us go out there and tell these people that, you know, look, I mean, 
we aren't going to let you continue to hold power if you start chipping away at these rights. And I think that sort of level of, you know, who will protect democracy, who won't, that's, I think, what should rise above, you know, political party. That's just basic, you know, principles that we should all hold near and dear to our hearts and something that, you know, when we go to the ballot box, if they don't support democracy, they shouldn't deserve um, our vote. I read what you write and I listen to what you say, and you particularly also try to make voices visible. You amplify people. You amplify groups who are marginalized, individuals who are perhaps marginalized. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm part of, I think my outlook on this is the fact that I'm a part of a generation that is more diverse than ever before, um, racially, sexually, socioeconomically, education wise as well. And so part of kind of the way that at least I've been sort of raised by talking to my peers is, you know, we we always think about, you know, who's not at the table, who, whose voices aren't we centering. And I think that sort of um, always keeping aware of, you know, what are the voices that we're missing is um, something that has been ingrained in me from a young age and something that I try to do, whether it's, you know, media work, whether it's through which voices I try to amplify, I think that's so important because it's those voices we need to hear so much more. It's not the pundits who are on TV. It's not the, you know, people who you see every day on your screens. It's the people who are actually on the ground who, you know, are impacted by these stories. And even just the other day, I was um, sitting in an Uber and my Uber driver told me, you know, he felt really hopeful for the first time because he got his student loans forgiven after 20 plus years of having to pay them off. And that was to me so powerful because we often talk about these programs and these successes that you know, the administration has passed, but we don't often center those individual stories and voices. And I think that's part of what I try to do every day is, is hopefully uplift those voices. And so also why I'm grateful for platforms like yours that are doing that every single week to really amplify those voices who don't really traditionally get a say in a democracy and in a place where it's kind of the wealthy and the privileged and the whites who have been able to control the narrative so long. And so to have those different diverse perspectives, I think is so important for our democracy. And that's why I'm th- thankful for your show respond to criticism like that you're just maybe some people we talk about the radicalized right that you're just radicalized left that you're just like the ultra liberal and that you yourself are just you know a recipient of privilege yeah it's always fine I think balance between like how like when do you respond when you don't respond. Usually, I try not to respond to those types of things um, unless it's like a constructive piece of feedback. It's hard to know what's constructive these days on Twitter because of the blue check mark. I mean, it seems like everyone has a blue check mark these days. But at least I try to think about you know who, who is actually responding to the work in a meaningful way, and then that and then I'm much more willing to engage in that front. I think there's just so much noise out there, and part of the right wing apparatus I know is to just flood the zone with as many attacks and and information as possible. And in that way, they get people to sort of shut down. But I think it's really just important to know that, you know, most of those people aren't serious. Most of those people are people who it's sort of, to me, a little bit laughable, maybe it it shouldn't be laughable, but like, you know, six year olds, seven year olds who are just attacking me for what I put out there. But I think if it is something where, you know, it is constructive and meaningful, I do try to engage as much as possible, because that sort of dialogue, I think, is also really important. But sort of sifting through the noise and finding those kind of people who are serious about having that conversation is something that I really value. Speaking of dialogue, you have two shows, two platforms, and I'm wondering if you can share with the listeners about those. The first one is the newest one. It's called On the Move, and that happened right after the midterm elections. And it's an interview format I have on people across the generational pers- uh, spectrum, voices you haven't heard before, young people. It's all centered basically around Gen Zers and sort of our politics, our culture. And it's a very quick 15-minute interview every day. And we're starting back up in the fall after summer break. There's that show. And then the other show is a little bit more 
kind of like this show in the sense that you get to have conversations in depth and that sort of podcast format of being able to talk to someone and get into the nuances and get into the details is something that you don't, at least I don't really see much on TV. That's with Jill Weinbanks. It's called iGen Politics. And she's a Watergate lawyer, someone who represents a totally different generation. And I represent the young generation. And we just both have this sort of goal of trying to get people to see that there's more that it kind of unites us than divides us. Um, even though we're so different from each other, there is a lot that can unite our generations. And the more we can work together and talk to each other, hopefully that will inspire other people to do the same with the people in their lives. Yeah. And iGen, for listeners who are wondering, stand, stands for intergenerational. Victor, you're 21, and I believe Jill Weinbanks is 80. Yes, which is it honestly puts me to shame because she is much more active and um, amazing than I am. But like whenever we go on walks, it's like she walks. I have to keep up with her. <laughs> So uh, don't let age deceive you. <laughs> That's right. Tell us more about your friendship, your colleagueship with her. Yeah. So, I mean, we both met when we were running to become Biden delegates in Illinois. And this was back in February of 2020. So right before COVID hit and we were all forced into our homes and we were at an event and I remember seeing her and I was like, wait a minute, you're Jill Banks, right? And she said, yes. And she was like, how do you know me? And I said, well, I mean, I watch you on MSNBC basically every day because at the time it was the impeachment hearings and she was doing a lot of commentary for MSNBC, MSNBC. And she said, like, how old are you? And I said, at the time I was 17. And she said, how is it possible that, you know, someone like me and someone like you could both support President Biden? Because at the time, there weren't many young people who were supporting President Biden. Like, it was quite amazing how, how there were just so few people who were like me who were passionate about President Biden. She came up with the idea of getting people to think about, well, you know, there's a lot that's, you know, make that kind of unites us. And uh, we both support President Biden. So how can we bring that to the public? And I suggested a podcast format. And ever since we've been colleagues, we've also been good friends. We, we call each other. She really is such a mentor and just a great friend and person to have in my life. And um, like you said, she's 80 years old, but sometimes I feel like she's like 20. I mean, like with how fast she moves. People think about mentors and they think of much older, they think about friends, they think same age. And yeah, yeah. I'm a huge believer that there's so much to learn from everybody from all different perspectives, all different ages. And your back and forth, in fact, your most recent episode where the two, it was just the two of you reflecting and speaking was just really remarkable and, and, and an excellent listen. People don't often think about those intergenerational ways that we can all work together. I think a lot of the times, especially um, in the youth spaces that I am in, the first question I ask is, you know, well, how can adults help young people? And the, I always say, just talk to young people, you know, don't be afraid to talk to them. I, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about how, you know, it's, it's the you know older generations versus younger generations, whereas, you know, we can all work together. We can all reach out to each other, younger people talking to older people, vice versa. And that's, I think, the, the most important I, I guess, hopefully the mission that and the goal that we can kind of inspire in other people is to get people to have those conversations and to talk to that older or younger person in your life. Your comfort, though, with these conversations, no matter the age and even knocking on doors and walking around as a teenager, you know, a lot of adolescents aren't ready to have conversations with adults. And uh, sometimes it's even it breaks down by sex and gender that sort of just hormonally, you're like, so much is going on right now that I can't think straight and stop yelling at me and I don't want to speak. What do you attribute your comfort and your sort of proactivity regarding these conversations to? You know, I think it's 
a matter of, for me, I mean, I was never, you know, when I first started off, I was not great at it. And I, you know, there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and it's uncomfortable and it's very foreign for, at least when I first knocked on my first door, I, you know, stumbled over the script I was given and I was just, it, it was, it was not the best kind of performance. But I think one of the things that's really helped me is trying to be as authentic as, po- as possible. And I think that's something that I've tried to do, whether it's talking to, you know, my peer, whether it's talking to an adult, like not being phased by that sort of age. And, you know, I think that's helped me in navigating that, but also sort of knowing that, you know, not not letting that discomfort get to you. I mean, it's going to be uncomfortable. I think that's something we should all normalize. You know, having those conversations is uncomfortable inherently, but knowing that, you know, at the end of it, what do you want to get out of it? Whether it's, you know, just a friendship, whether it's convincing them, that sort of having that end goal in mind is, is I think, really important. But I think it comes with practice. I think it comes by just by doing it. You know, the more people you meet, the more you kind of get to learn the different personalities, how to respond to different situations. And I think that sort of practice really helps. But just sort of like pushing through the discomfort, pushing through that um, stress and, you know, acknowledging to yourself, this is normal. This is, it's, it's normal to feel this, but you can do it. And the best piece of advice that I got during the 2020 campaign trail was, from the campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon. And she always used to tell people, you know, we can all do hard things. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to talk to someone older than you, but we can do it. And I think telling yourself that is a really awesome kind of North Star to have. Yeah. I think all different forms of communication are related. So the spoken form, the written form, and you're a reader and you and I talked a little bit about books. I love books. I also am a big fan of language and medicine has a language. Uh, You know, I say, sometimes I speak with someone who's not a doctor. I'm like, wow, you speak medical. How did you learn medical? (laughs) And, you know, I think there's like Politico too. And so you and Jill uh, and on your show um, often use, um, you speak political. And so there's some phrases I really, really like. One that I hear quite a bit is uh, get out over her skis or get out over your skis. Um, <laughs> and the other is uh, gerrymandering. Like, yes, um, yes. You know, <laughs> do you have any favorite words or phrases? You and Jill actually were like going back and forth on some, like, yeah. like I don't know, um, generational phrases, but any phrases, words that you find particularly effective or are some of your favorite words? In terms of phrases that you mentioned gerrymandering, I think we, we try to give people a better understanding of what these really kind of esoteric things are, like the electoral college, like gerrymandering. I mean, those things that you don't often hear about or think about, I think. And so we try to kind of shine a light on those. But you mentioned the most recent episode and sort of the, the generational phrases. I mean, I was talking about like, for instance, this generation really loves to use the word or the letter W to express like, you know, that's a win and those type of things that we, we try to do. But actually, it's really interesting that you say that because I think one of the things about language that we at least try to do with our show and that we, you know, her being a lawyer is we actually try not to make things like overly like, like like we try not to talk in politics or when we do, we try to talk about like, you know, the term and then give people an explanation about what that term is. But for her as a lawyer, she always tells people do not write or speak like a lawyer. I mean, it's just like confusing. It's muddled. Like we try to speak as just as clearly as simply as we can. And I think that often just about like kind of democratic communication, that's something that I think Democrats haven't traditionally been the best at. And so just speaking in clear, simple terms, like you're talking to your friend or your grandparent who doesn't understand a particular term or phrase that's something i think that we we try to do but you know at the same time giving people a better under, uh, understanding of what those political terms are 
guess one of the phrases that we love using and that Jill actually has a hashtag is called say this, not that. And so like, for example, don't say it's a, a misstatement. Say it's a lie. Like just like call out for what it is. When you talk about the former president, don't say former president Trump. Just say, just like Judge Chuckin did um, in her first hearing, she said, Mr. Trump, right? I, and that's sort of like, say this, not that. There, there are certain things that we should just normalize like Mr. Trump or um, say, you know, twice impeached, four time indicted, you know, proven rapist former president donald trump like that's something that i think that i i really love and just like link like you said language words the way we talk about things really matters and it can be the biggest difference i mean we're talking about for instance how the media covers some of the things that president biden does and instead of saying well you know if there's a poll that shows 50 percent of people approve of him and 50 percent of people disapprove of him the media will say well 50 percent of the public disapproves of president biden but it's a different say- thing to say 50% of the country approves of President Biden. That sort of thing where it's like, we can we can frame things in different ways. It goes back to our point about language being such a powerful way of, of getting information across. 100%. So what keeps you up at night? Two things primarily right now. First, just the state of this Republican Party. And, you know, I, I long for a time that we can kind of have two functioning political parties. And the second is the problems and the sort of the gap between what President Biden is doing and the impacts that people feel. And, you know, there are a lot of polls that show um, people just aren't really catching on to what this administration has done. So that gets me to think about, okay, well, like, why is that message not resonating? How can we get that message to resonate with more people? Where are we not on? What aren't we on? You know, what's working, what's not working? And that is concerning because I think truly, like genuinely, I, I really believe that what this presidency, what this president has done is remarkable, not just for people like me who are passionate about him and who love Democrats, but for Everyone. I mean, you think about his broadband bill and um, his his infrastructure package. Those are people. Those are things that help every single person in America, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. And I think getting people to celebrate, feel that, and celebrate that is something that um, I hope we can do more of. And, and finding ways to do that has been really kind of keeping me awake, but also just other life stuff, like the fact that I'm about to go into my senior year of college and what that'll look like. Um, but I try not to lose lose too much sleep over that. So, what do you think the senior year is going to look like? Oh my gosh, I have no clue. Well, I'm I'm excited to finish my major. I'm currently an American lit and culture major. I'm also really sad. Like I I don't know, like we were talking right before the show started about sort of the conceptions that Midwesterners and East Coast people have about the West Coast. And I personally I, I didn't think much about LA before I applied and then I got in. I was like, hmm, like this school exists. And so I went there and it truly blew my mind away. The food, the weather, the beaches, just it's all really wonderful. And I loved so, like so much of my college experience was formed by UCLA itself, but also just beyond UCLA and the LA area. There's so much interesting things to do there and I'll really miss it. And so I, there's a little bit of me that's sad to leave, but also excited for hopefully what's to come. One of the things that we would be remiss to not discuss, and I just wanted to say it like that, remiss, because it's a good word, gun violence and the recent shootings. As we're recording this uh, over the weekend, there was one that happened in Jacksonville, Florida, where it seems like it was a hate crime. You had this one white man who entered this HBCU and basically shot three black people, and they're all unfortunately dead. And on his gun, there was a swastika symbol attached to it. And it's just this... I think there's two different ways I look at this. First, it's just obviously the guns. I mean, there's no civilized society in my mind that should allow just ordinary citizens to have a gu- like an AR-15, a military assault weapon that can literally pierce through people in seconds. I mean, m- multiple people in seconds. That's just not 
I think, a reality that any of us want to live in. And the lack of gun laws that, you know, I guess maybe not the lack of gun laws, but just the, the, the refusal from Republicans or from elected officials to do anything about it is really sickening. But also, I think what we saw over the weekend was the connection between the actions that the gunman took and also the actions that elected officials have sort of bred and promoted. I mean, you have Ron DeSantis in Florida. We were talking about this earlier about, you know, Ron DeSantis's drive to basically suppress Black voices, to target that community, to, to sort of foster this culture and this normalization of hate and violence and, and, and just kind of racism. And I think that really, unfortunately, can get to, you know, when it gets into the wrong mind, it can result in something that we saw in um, Jacksonville. And that's something that I think all of us, as we're thinking about sort of how we can respond, of course, it's voting, but it's also just whenever there's hate, whenever you see someone talk about something in a racist way or in a sexist way or in a homophobic way, call out, you know, don't let that slide. And that's, it's sad that we have to be in this reality. And it's sad that we have elected officials who hold power, who are breeding that sort of culture and that sort of, you know, environment. Two terms that come to mind are upstanding rather than bystanding. And before we press record, you and I were talking about political awakening and being politically active. And I shared that for myself, aspects of my political awakening have come later in life. And also, I think they were socialized in medicine. You know, as doctors, we were taught, you know, don't speak up, don't take a political side. What you do is not political. And certainly over this last period, even pre-COVID, but certainly covid ripped off what I call a scab of a wound, many physicians now, healthcare professionals generally, but definitely doctors, you see more doctors running for office, you see more doctors speaking up specifically around the topic of gun violence. And so, you know, what is your feeling about doctors running for office and about young people running for office? I love it. I mean, it is it is so inspiring to see. And, you know, it, the, the medical profession, at least, is, is one of the areas where I you know, in my mind, at least, I always thought it was not political and for good reason, right? I mean, it centers facts, it centers evidence. That's the way that kind of medicine and science are supposed to work. But unfortunately, Trump made it political. I mean, he attacked the medical community. He delegitimized scientists and the work that they do. And so we're sort of in this moment where to see scientists and doctors and people in the medical profession rise up has been so inspiring. I'm currently in Chicago, my hometown, and um, not too far away from me, I had the pleasure of meeting a nurse anesthesiologist who told me that if it weren't for Trump, she wouldn't have ever gotten involved in politics either. And I think that's sort of awakening, that sort of movement that Trump awakened just by going after the medical community, having people attack just lifelong scientists like Dr. Fauci and other scientists has been just so saddening to see. But seeing the backlash to that and, and the counter to that with the medical profession coming up and speaking out against this attack, these attacks has been really, I think, inspiring to see. And same with young people, where you see the lives of young people being kind of under assault in states across the country, making it harder for us to vote, taking away rights. But the counter to that is that you see young people going to the streets, protesting, registering to vote at record-breaking levels, and then turning out to vote at historic levels as well. And I think that's what gives me most hope is that people are sick and tired of that. People are responding. People are outraged. They're, they're, they're angry. They're pissed off. And, and, and in natural response to that, they're running for office, they're voting. And I think it's, you know, if Republicans and if people haven't learned that lesson yet, I hope they, they do because it's a, it's a force, it's a movement, and it's going to make a difference in 2024. Yeah. Do you prefer being on one side of the microphone versus the other? 
public speaking has always been harder for me compared to like MSNBC or like a podcast. Um, I just think it's much more intimate. I'm not the best. I, I don't have the loudest voice. I don't have, I, I don't, which is part of the reason why I don't think I could ever run for office, but that sort of like rallying voice is something that I've never been good at. And I admit it, but the sort of just like sit down conversations as I, I really love. What about asking questions versus Ooh, yeah, responding yeah. to? I think both are really awesome. I mean, like, I think both are a skill and I think it's an undervalued skill. Like for, for I was talking to um, a local reporter the other day from Chicago, Lynn Sweet, and we we're just talking about sort of moderating and like, and not many people know how to moderate a conversation and know how to set a guest down and have that natural conversation. You're great at it, but there are not many people who know how to do that. And I think it's, it's, it's a skill that I've been um, really lucky to have learned and I, I'm always trying to get better at it. You know, I don't really have a preference for speaking or, or asking questions. I would say if I had to choose one, maybe the asking questions part, because I'm really curious and I love to learn more about other people's lives. And I think there's a level of like, I was talking to someone and my biggest regret about college is that I wish I had gone to more office hours. And that person was saying, well, you're sort of getting like an office hour with all the interviews that you do. And I was like, that's kind of true. And, but like that sort of like just asking someone the work about the work they do, their life story and learning different perspectives is just so enriching and, and special. The importance of the local news. You've spoken on this and I'm wondering if you can go deep for the audience. Well, um, I come from a place where local news has really defined um, this place, Chicago. I mean, you have Chicago Tribune, you have Daily Herald, the Sun-Times, you have a bunch of patch sort of local news organizations out there. And it really is the most accessible and easy way for people to stay involved in our democracy. But unfortunately, in recent years, we've seen the slow decline of local newsrooms throughout the country. Um, the Chicago Tribune had to recently move out of its flagship Chicago Tribune Center building in Chicago into a smaller building because they had to lay off a bunch of people because there just aren't, there isn't that appetite for local news anymore. And that, to me, is really dangerous for our democracy because, you know, like you mentioned at the top of this hour, if we only rely on sort of national news, and, you know, like traditional media, it's just not going to cut it for the information that people need to stay connected with their communities, to know what's going on, to see the stories that's happening all around them. It's without that local news and without that local journalism, it really, just like the Washington Post motto, you know, democracy dies in darkness. That's a way that there isn't being, there isn't a light being shined on the issues that we care about that are really important. You don't know what's happening in, you know, your, your city council race. You don't know what's happening to the road outside of your, your window. But when you know that, you actually believe that things are possible. You, you become empowered to make a difference in your community. And that lack of, I think there's a probably, I don't know the exact research on this, but I'm sure there's a correlation between sort of the availability of local news organizations and the levels of civic participation and the ability for people to feel like they have a role in our democracy. And with the decline of local journalism, I fear what that does to civic participation. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is to that. I mean, hopefully more increased funding for local news organizations, but also I think maybe social media can also be a great way that we can begin changing that course. But I hope that we can see a resurgence of local journalism. And, you know, we've seen it recently, at least, at least with, you know, outlets like ProPublica, like investigative, just local small news organizations um, doing amazing work and shining a light on things that wouldn't otherwise get covered. Um, so I hope there's a, there's, there's a, there's a new sort of movement for local and independent journalism. I cannot think of your interview with the Stanford freshman who broke the story oh, on yes, the president. Yes. yes. I mean, he's remarkable. Theo Baker, if you don't follow him, 
you better follow him because he's going to be the next, just the, the next amazing journalist. I mean, he is already a great journalist and he broke the story on his college campus, Stanford, um, about the president of Stanford and how he basically fabricated a lot, a lot of the scientific publications and journals that, or he was basically the first author when he shouldn't have been. And it resulted in the Stanford president resigning. And it was just, you know, this Stanford freshman doing, you know, the work of student journalists and he was able to, to do that. And that's remarkable. And it's not just him, though. I mean, part of our conversation was about how it's also Northwestern recently, or their on-campus news organization uh, broke a story about a football coach, and it resulted in a huge backlash movement. And there was also Columbia University. So all across the country, you're seeing young, young journalists really, I think, rising to the occasion and showing that they also produce tremendous work. And that's also, I mean, the work that they do on their college campuses, I think, generates more chatter and generates more activism and, and civic participation on their college campuses compared to if they didn't exist. And so I think they're really setting a great example. And I hope it inspires other young people to just sign up for, you know, a local uh, news organization on, on your college campus. Agree. Your legacy. I hope it's one of inspiring young people and getting people to participate in our democracy and people who, like you said, you know, who sort of look like me, Asian Americans, young people who traditionally don't really have a role in our democracy who've been sort of off to the sideline to see someone who hopefully like me is is out there. I hope it inspires other people to do the same. Even if it's just one person walking past the TV and seeing an Asian American up on the screen, hopefully I'm doing my best to represent them and their perspectives and their voices. But uh, that's all I can hope for. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to my guest, Victor Shi. Thank you so much for joining me during your sachet from Washington, D.C. back to L.A. from your senior year of college, and best of luck during your senior year. Audience, I like to share what I learned from my conversations, and suffice it to say that I learn a lot from listening to Victor, from watching Victor, and from this specific conversation. There's an emphasis and a uh, bold face underline to the fact that it is important to develop relationships, friendships, colleagueships, mentorships, sponsorships with people of all ages. And Jill and Victor are a testament to the importance of these dialogues and these conversations. Number two, we need to be involved. We need to have a voice. We have a civic responsibility to educate ourselves, but also to use our voices to speak to integrity, to speak to professionalism, to speak to justice. Finally, language, words, reading, it all matters. Words matter. And audience, I want you to think about the words you use, the way you advocate, the voice you have, so that all of us can have a healthier society. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued. <laughs>